You're listening to Talking Threat Intelligence, a podcast dedicated to uncovering the new challenges of today's threat landscape. Each episode, we connect with some of the world's leading practitioners to share stories from the front lines of corporate security. And now, on to the show. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Talking Threat Intelligence. I'm your host, Robert Ballew. And joining me today is Chris Story, Director of Risk Intelligence and Security Consulting at Triumph Protection Group, and the host of the very popular Conversations in Close Protection podcast. Chris, thanks for joining me today. Robert, so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Excited to be on the other end of the microphone. Yeah, it's different when you're uh, on the other side. Now, Chris, before we hit record, you said something really interesting. You said that there's almost too much focus right now on OSINT for investigations, but an underrated kind of application of OSINT is also on the more the security sphere as well for security operations, which I thought was really, really interesting. What did you mean by that? Well, so I think when I started, Clubhouse is what really brought it to my attention, right? Like when Clubhouse started, I think early last year or whatever it was, was that uh, a lot of people would come on board and they talk about, you know, open source intelligence and physical security and combining the two and what it looked like. And really what it turned out was that we had a lot of folks that use open source intelligence for their investigations. And so those two terms really got conflated because from my perspective, open source investigation is looking at a person, place or thing very, very, you know, to find as much as possible about it. And you use open source intelligence to do that. Open source intelligence is much broader. So just like a GSOC is a component of a risk intelligence center, open source investigations is a component of open source intelligence. So, you know, I can find out what the weather is going to be. I can find out an open source might be internal open source too. What do I have within my organization? And then what are we using external? Like one of my favorite examples to use is uh, as you combine open source intelligence with internal operations, if your cybersecurity team is saying, hey, it looks like we've got some servers that went down. It might be a denial, a direct denial of services attack in XYZ. The physical security team can use open source and go, or has hopefully already done so saying, hey, we were expecting weather in that area. As you know, there's no backup generator at that site, you know, with that small server stack you might start looking there, right? So which helps us rapidly accelerate our response to what might be a determinative threat. And it allows us to look very, very quickly is, is that the solution or are we looking at something else? And so I think from an open source intelligence perspective, it's very, very powerful. To continue with that, as you know, it seems like it's spying or whatever the case is, but at the end of the day, intelligence collection, I think it's very well known and widely known that the super secret ninja stuff that like government agencies do is to collect that 5% of information that's not openly accessible. I think now we have so many tools to allow us to do our jobs so much effectively, uh, so much more effectively than, you know, doing library research, if you will. Now it just comes down to the five W's, you know, who, what, when, where, why, and how at the right time and the right place to assist in my operations. Kind of elaborated a bit on that with the interaction between cybersecurity and physical there. What have been the kind of use cases that you've been using OSINT for in in your day-to-day operations with with clients? So first off, as a client, I try to understand what their risks are. That's that's key, right? You can't provide a solution without understanding what the risks and threats are. And then you're able to align those risk mitigation solutions with the organizational objectives as well, right? So that's number one. And then number two is is then finding the appropriate tools and sitting them in front of the from the clients or customers to say, hey, this tool or this tool stack, if you will, is going to help you get to where you need to be based on budget. And then of course, it's uh, one of the cooler things about using technology is that in some way, invariably, you've got a 
involve IT and cyber because, you know, hey, is it, that's just part of the due diligence process to say, hey, look, are we introducing this in, into our ecosystem or are we, is it external? And then what is the threat to each of those, right? And so you're able to communicate with them about what you're doing, why you're doing, how you're doing, and then show them other tools and that you're able to communicate in different ways, shapes, or forms. And just understanding those pieces helps us work together because we tend to be very, very siloed. Interestingly, they do the same thing. Just a lot of the things that they do for that open source is, is automated and usually is focused on a bunch of different ones and zeros in a different language than, than most physical security or intelligence people speak. Then after all that's completed, once you bring the tools into the ecosystem, then essentially what we try to do is we try to give Number one is situation awareness. What is going on in our environment so that we understand what we need to respond to and how to respond? Or do we need to respond, right? It's, just, it's essentially just keeping a finger on the pulse. And then eventually we want to be able to work into some level of predictive intelligence, right? As we understand what the threats are. So for example, one of a lot of threats we see are stock-based, right? Hey, the stock's not doing this, or it's not doing that. Well, and I'll say threats with air quotes because it's some of it is white noise. And so one of the biggest things that I've seen is in the industry is that across the board, people, we say the squeaky wheel gets the grease. That's exactly what happens in the protective space is that Chris is making lots of noise. Chris is making lots of noise. He's the biggest threat. He's the biggest threat. He's the biggest threat because he's making all the noise. Meanwhile, Robert has made one or two threats that are actual threats. And we've missed them because Chris is making all the noise. So really what we try to do is figure out understanding what the threat landscape is, understanding who's a risk, who's making noise, and then where are they, if at all, in levels of escalation or path to violence or whatever the case is. And and we use a lot of that open source information to do those investigations on people who are making threats within the either internal or external to the organization, if that makes sense. So- Part of that is providing a daily threat intelligence report on where our assets and resources are, and then any travel locations, you know, what is going on? What can I expect? What can I do? And then add in the human element to that, which is the analysis of, hey, wow, this sounds really bad. Is this going to apply to me or not apply to me? And then how do I mitigate that risk? And we just do that at scale across the board with our customers and, and help them do that either internally or we do that externally as well as a service. Can you tell me about kind of an interesting time from your work? Would you be comfortable in talking anything about that? Sure. A couple of things are, is that again, the tools help bring uh, to the forefront some of the things that might be anomalies. And it's up to us to investigate what that anomaly is. So I think in some cases we've seen, here's two examples, one not so good and a good example. In the uh, galaxy far, far away, right? In other words, a long time ago, there was a, we was working a labor dispute and labor disputes can be notoriously violent because they bring in people from outside uh, their immediate area. It's kind of like hockey, the enforcers, you know, the guy comes in, scuffs some people up, spends some time in jail and bangs out, you know? So there was a guy who made a threat that he was going to come to Houston and kill the, or injure the protectee. So the security company that was providing support said, okay, let's put surveillance on this guy and let's figure out what's happening. So they had surveillance. Well, unfortunately, surveillance was not 24-7 surveillance. It was just kind of a couple hours, I guess, during the day for whatever reason. So they're like, hey, the guy's truck hasn't moved since we've had him under surveillance. And it was like, oh, crap. He's gone, right? He's on a plane. He's on a bus. He's doing whatever. And this isn't the time where there's a lot of social media so you can track people, you know? So suddenly the whole protective team is like calling hotels in the area, trying to find this guy's name, hoping that he used his real name and not an alias, right? You can imagine that was a complete waste of time, right? Completely inefficient, but had to be done. Well, turns out the surveillance team was only looking at him from eight to five and he worked the night shift. So 
Every time they looked at his car, he was there at home, but they saw no movement because he was asleep. That would be an example of <laughs> essentially a failure in old methods of doing things. Now, surveillance is still a great uh, part of the mix, but we just have to make sure that we do it appropriately. In this case, or as, as a win, a client had somebody who kept, you know, making veiled threats about, you know, their happiness with the stock, what they're going to do, blah, blah, blah. And they made a threat that they were going to do a, uh, what's called a derivative lawsuit, which says, hey, I invested in you and you didn't have the fiduciary responsibility and I lost money, right? And, you know, most cases, some companies will just sell out of court because it's just not worth it, right? And this guy had a history of doing those things. And so if you look at it as a nuisance and just like, that's not a threat, you know, nobody would have ever seen it. But then it became a threat to the organization because this person had a history of doing so. It's documented. It's there in open source. And, oh, hey, now we can get in front of it, you know, potentially giving the organization leverage and protecting its, its interest and really bringing up a threat that maybe not been seen as one by anybody because they were just leaving emails or leaving voicemails that people found irritating. That's a great example of how open source intelligence is really, really helpful in determining what is actually a threat to the organization and what isn't, or an individual. And it doesn't have to be, I think, old school. And I think some people now still look for open source intelligence to be like the smoking gun. Like, oh, there he is. He's holding a severed head. Like, here's the deal. It's not that. There's so much more as you're looking at different variables, what the person's baseline is. And then are they on a path to violence? Are they a nuisance? Are they, are they just giving white noise? Or are they a hunter? And are they actually going to execute? The end of that answer there, I thought was really interesting. I clued into two things that I kind of want to dive into next. Number one, like what are the limitations that you have seen in, in OSENSE for your security operations? But then the second part that I also wanted to dive in there too, that I thought was interesting is what are the things that you're kind of looking for when, when you're evaluating a threat online, whether or not this is serious or it's just kind of noise on the internet? So number one limitations are essentially while we talk about machine learning and AI, et cetera, there's still some very, very manual processes, right? So building a list of keywords or doing your searches or pulling the thread, right? So part of it is that most open source funnels are very, very wide, and then they give you probability of what your search looks like. And um, I can only imagine on the back end, there's data collection on what the searches are so that they could become more, you know, more accurate over time, right? That's the only way that it's going to learn. So that's the piece that can be frustrating is that Charles C. Smith from Bonnetville, Alabama or whatever, it doesn't sound like there might be two of them, but there might actually be three of them. And you determining which is the right one can be somewhat frustrating specifically because then you've got to give, give a recommendation. And if you're at 65% for each of them, you're like, what am I going to do? It's not a crystal ball and it's not magic. So it does take time to develop the breadcrumbs that align with, hey, yes, we believe that this person is a threat based on these variables. This is our probability. That's the biggest piece. And, and those are some of the limitations is that the volume of information you get that is just, hey, this might be associated with this person. And then you kind of having to pare down what those are. That's the piece that becomes uh, somewhat tedious and some, I wouldn't say limitations, but becomes very, very analyst centric based on the tools that you use that. And then of course, like I talked about building keyword searches, building, this is more for deep, dark, and then uh, social media is figuring out exactly what you need. So you don't get a bunch of white noise and you're always constantly paring it down. That's the piece that I think is the most challenging from my perspective. Right. Well, like from the, from the part that you said about crystal ball, I just had a great conversation with uh, Kyle Baker, one of our product specialists here will be on the show shortly. And a lot of times people kind of expect this easy button. They just scan the web and then all the threats will just magically appear. And then right. it's got this got it's like some of them might, some of them 
if you're practicing any sort of operational security at all and, and you're keeping a low profile online, that might not pop up in a lot of these issues right. that are going to happen, right? right? Which right. is, there seems to be like almost like two camps of the people that are extremely skeptical and then the people that are almost like naive about what can be accomplished through OSINT. And right. it's finding the right balance in there. Right. I think the people that are skeptical don't understand it and they don't want to understand it because I think they think that it's going to remove their value from the equation. I think the protective intelligence piece, yes, I'm biased. I started out as a counterintelligence agent. The protective intelligence piece makes you better at protecting the principal, which doesn't necessarily mean that you, as the last line of defense, have to be, you know, pull your shirt open and I'll save you, sir, you know, dun, 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 Superman, which is what I think everybody envisions. But at the end of the day, if we can change the trajectory of a threat as far away as possible from our principal, we've won every day, every single time we win. So I think that's the piece that is challenging. To those folks, I say, if you're going into a dark room and in that dark room, there's haze, there's fog, there's a bunch of stuff that you can bang your shins on. There might be some spikes and some other things. Wouldn't you like to know what those things were, even as you're walking through there? That's protective intelligence. You're protecting yourself by understanding where those things are as you make yourself to the light switch. Once you get in the room and you can turn the light switch on, then you'll be able to see where all those things are. But protective intelligence knows where those are, where they are, or gives you some level of understanding of where they are so you can be prepared for them. Having said that, it's only as good as the information that's available. So it's not a crystal ball. One of the pieces of feedback that we got before was from one of our clients was, hey, there was a robbery next door and you didn't pick it up. Your systems didn't pick it up. And I said, okay, was it reported? Well, no, they didn't want a report done, right? So it was a cold call. Somebody came up. So they're, so they're not, a, and it was a robbery, but they, after the fact, so it was like a code three or anything. And I go, okay, great. So was it reported? Because the three systems we use plus, you know, Google scanned everything for it and found nothing. So it is like a tree in the woods. If a tree in the woods falls and nobody's around to hear it, did it happen? Well, as far as OSINT's concern is no, but now that you've reported it, we can log it and then look at that for future issues coming down the pike. So I think that's the misunderstanding is that like, well, it's a crystal ball. The protective intelligence should have told us, or the open source intelligence should have told us this isn't happening. So this is going to happen. We're not there yet. We can only make decisions and assumptions based on the, off the information known at the time. And then the, the Intel support that's happening to you real time, somebody either reporting from where you're going or Twitter feeds or you know one of my favorite uh, tools to use, which is uh, just doing a quick snapshot of what's being pushed at or near real time to tell you like what is going on. Is it spiking you know, thresholds, et cetera, to give you an indication of, is this something I need to look at? I had a conversation the other day and I was just talking about um, OSINT and what our organization does. And like, oh, it's kind of like the precogs in minority report. I'm like, not really. It gets you ahead of a threat, but it's not a, like we've been saying, the, the crystal ball or, or anything right. like that, you know, where it gets everything. It's just one right. tool in the toolkit and you need a bunch of different tools to do your job effectively. Right. And I think that's a great analogy is the minority report because I was talking to one of the smartest people that I've ever met. And I don't say that lightly about this the other day. Her name is uh, Taylor. And she was talking about what she does, which is she used to do a lot of OSINT, right? And she was very, very, very smart with it. And now she's able to apply other tools, components of AI to that to almost predict. I mean, and this is nothing new, right? This is actually predictive analysis is what almost every sector works on uh, using technology to do so, right? Financial sector, the retail sector, like we were talking about before, marketing. How do I use all these data sets to predict what might be what might an outcome 
or what might out what outcome might be coming down the pike. It's we're always going to be working on it. There's millions of variables, but we're trying to get as close as possible. So while it's not like the minority report, I think it's likely headed in that direction. Now, obviously, we're not going to go arrest somebody before they committed a crime. But uh, from a security standpoint, and I think this is interesting, if you remember the Bezos case, which there was an insider that was leaking information. um, Oh, right. From his phone or something. From his phone, right? I mean, he had a lot of challenges across the board, but one of the things that struck me as I looked at that is protectors use, or most protectors are, are ad hoc, right? So if I'm going from city to city to city, I don't have a one protective team that usually goes from city to city to city with me. I'll have one protector that's the same, and then I'll use contractors. So why would the threat not do the same thing? It's cost effective, right? So now instead of looking for Chris in five different cities, I can't look for Chris in five different cities. What do I have to do? I have to look for behaviors. And so if I'm able to identify those behaviors by whatever key identifiers are available, I may be able to identify patterns, right? Now we have to use technology to do that. And the data sets for that are exponential. And it's probably not something that we're going to see in security for a very long time. But I think there, you know, if we know how to look, know where to look, and then can identify unique signals, then we can identify some of the patterns that we might need to. But those are very, very big future problems to uh, to solve for that predictive analysis. And then, of course, all we would do is just take that away from the from the adversary, right? And then just push them further, which changes that trajectory. It makes them harder to get the principal. That makes sense. It's a constant uh, feedback loop. We, Absolutely. we make an advance, they change their game. They make an advance, they change the game. Absolutely. Never going to change. Uh, yeah. Keeps it interesting, though. <laughs> Absolutely. For someone looking to get started in, in applying OSINT to the, their security operations and a lot of similar work that you might be doing, where would you suggest that they get started? I think number one is you have to understand your risks. And two, you have to do two things. You have to understand your business what you're protecting. You have to understand the risks that face that business. And then you have to understand what your resources are in order to execute that because that's the starting point. So even if you do what I like to call the either the solo practitioner or the poor man's OSINT, you know, Google is your friend. You can set Google searches, you can set Google alerts, you can do all those things and get kind of pair them down, up and down. And then there's plenty of open source. It's called intelligence, but it's usually investigative courses that you can take to get a little bit smarter, but don't wait, like start those Google searches, figure out what's going on, do a search on yourself, figure out what's out there, figure out from a privacy perspective, what you can limit, figure out what's out there on your principles or your organizations or your locations, and then start to understand, okay, what's, what goes in the bad bucket, what goes in the who cares bucket, like the neutral bucket, and then what goes in the good bucket, and then start to collect on those things. Same thing for, you know, I call it the poor man's license plate reader, right? I mean, and there's some tools that, that help you do it, but cruise through your parking lots of your, you know, your organization and which license plates are supposed to be there, which ones aren't. Again, this is very, very tedious, but you can use some small free programs to do some downloads and whatever. And then you're able to start looking at anomalies. Okay. These are supposed to be here. These are not, these are here at these dates, times, and patterns, and these are not. And I think it really just comes down to managing that in a spreadsheet. And then you start to understand, okay, great. What kind of threats am I getting? And you categorize those threats into, you know, is it violent? Is it just a nuisance, et cetera? And then you start to look for technology to help you support those things. 
And I think really that's what it comes down to is identifying the risk your organization faces. What is it that you need? And then doing the homework up front and then figuring out the tool that helps you to do those things more efficiently, which helps you build that business case for whatever budgetary needs that you are, whether that's uh, usually it's uh, going to be multiple platforms just because each platform currently does like one or two things really, really well and then everything else. So it really depends on your focuses. I think that's the easy part. Once you start Googling this stuff and you're like, okay, it's easy to get lost in a lot of the tools, but if you haven't done that assessment ahead of time and really figured out, okay, where do we, what's the 20% that we really need that's going to cover 80% of our challenges or or, yeah. And what are the real threats that are out there? You can kind of get lost in the uh, OSINT toolkit kind of stuff very quickly. Yeah. So I learned early on from a, from a, some really smart people was establish your requirements first. Right. So the risk gives us what our requirements need. You know, do I need real time intelligence or do I need need a report? Do I need to be able to work it through an app or what are the delivery methods that it gives me this? Is it on a 24 hour cycle? Is it immediate? You know, how much bandwidth does it take? Is it internal platform? Does it have to be manned full time? What do I need? Most of our clients are like, I need to set it and forget it tool that feeds me information that I can go in and tweak once in a while. Or if I really figured something's really going crazy, I can go in and I can get a snapshot of what's happening. Others have analysts that are in it all the time and they build, you know, they're building tools and threat assessments, et cetera. So you need to understand what number one, your risks are and how to mitigate those risks and the requirements that your software platform needs for your your OSINT pool, if you will, needs to do those things. And if you find, like you said, if if it's like Word where you're only using 20% of the tool to solve those problems, you may have to have a stack where you get as close as possible to finding the solutions for your problems or mitigating that risk. Are there any big common mistakes that you see perhaps other practitioners in the industry making with regards to OSINT that kind of get under your skin a little bit? So aside from conflating open source investigations with open source intelligence, I think the next thing is that piece where we give so much credit and credibility to the noisemaker, the howler, right? Mm. Because they're just always in our face, always in our face, and they're always doing something. And if they have an, a little bit of an escalation, like well, they used to not cuss and then now they're cussing or whatever, right? But they're not actually making threats right? Like there's a difference between a threat, like I'm going to do something. Well, that's okay. You know, I'm going to do something about this. Okay. That's a threat, right? Or I'm going to make you pay. That's a threat. Somebody should do something. That's a veiled threat, not as serious because they're not associating with them. So I think the white noise piece gets really, really frustrating because my concern again is I don't really care about the person who's making it about them. I'm concerned the person that's making it about us. Does that make sense? Like you did this to me, I'm going to make it right. That's a scary person. That's a really good tip. I hadn't uh, hadn't heard that before, but that was um, interesting insight, Chris. Anyway, we are coming up at the end of the time that I promised to steal from you today. What's the main takeaway you want listeners to remember from this episode? OSINT isn't new. We've used it. I mean, at the end of the day, it should be called business intelligence and it would be folks scanning newspapers and news articles about what their competition was doing. It isn't new. But unfortunately, it's new to our industry and our ability to execute. It's uh, definitely a great resource for folks in the field, whether you're in a physical security space or a protective security space, so that you get near or real-time intelligence about what's going on around you. Important piece is that can impact your operation. 
And really, that's the problem that we need to solve is right time, the right information to the people on the ground that need it so that they start to understand that it's effective rather than just getting hammered with stuff that they don't really need to know at that time during their operation. But I think that as we start seeing more and more of it, and we start seeing that organizations are finding more value in it, we'll see it adopted across the board. And then it'll get it'll probably move away from just security and it'll translate into risk intelligence where you're looking at risks for organization at, at large and not only current risks, but future risks. So in other words, hey, we're thinking about building a plant in XYZ city and XYZ country. What does it look like for us? And we're able to go backwards and forwards and do some level of predictable analysis or predictive analysis to understand, you know, hey, what does that look like from a security perspective, a financial risk perspective and an operational perspective? So I, that's where I hope it goes. Yeah. And what do you uh, you want to tell listeners what you're working on now and how they can get in touch? Well, this is the the part that I hate, which is talking about myself a little this bit. This is the sales pitch part, but you get has to be done. Has to be done. <laughs> so we do something similar at Triumph. It's called uh, Overwatch, and we are proud of what we do. And it, it, we offer situation awareness, uh, real time to near real time risk intelligence reporting, whether that's daily, weekly, or monthly. We show patterns. We try to really help inform decision makers on what they're looking for, what, what they're looking at. We do limited investigations supporting those. And we it's a, basically a subscription service to do those things. And and we're, we're pretty excited about it. And it's funny, we're excited about what the future holds too with uh, you know adding uh, machine learning and AI to it. And then of course, you can find us at uh, Conversation Close Protection. We do a clubhouse every Monday night at 5.30. And then of course, uh, you, know, you can always find me on LinkedIn. All right. I'll be definitely sure to include a link to those in the description. Awesome. Chris, Thanks, Robert. Thanks for joining me today. Awesome. I, I appreciate it. Uh, big fan. And uh, thank you for what you're doing for the protective intelligence and the intelligence industry over, overall and at large. All right. Again, that was Chris Story, Director of Risk Intelligence and Security Consulting at Triumph Protection Group and host of one of my favorite conversations in Close Protection podcasts. Thanks for listening to another episode of Talking Threat Intelligence. Never miss an episode by hitting the subscribe button on your pod fetcher. And if you'd like more insights on building a successful threat intelligence program, be sure to check out our resource page at lifebraffinc.com slash blog. That's lifebraffinc.com slash blog. And I hope you tune in next time.